This week on The Elucidators Decoding Global News, friend of the show, Professor Ryan Weldzius of Villanova University swings by to give us the 411 on the global economy in 2020 and beyond. The COVID pandemic has disrupted every major economy in the world, from the United States to the European Union to China, and kicked off what appears to be a new era of fragmentation in international economic relationships. What does all this mean for us in the short, medium, and long terms? We've got answers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators, as always. I'm your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom, And we have a very special guest host as well this week, my good friend, Professor Ryan Weldzius, lately of Villanova University. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, we're, we're, we're getting uh, smoked out here in California. Where, where are you right now? I am in Philadelphia, so we are okay. And it's actually yeah. starting to feel like fall now, which I haven't had in a while. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah, no, we don't do that in SoCal. And we especially don't do that right now because we're not going outside because the state's on fire. Yeah. yeah. Any leaves that could have fallen on the ground would be on fire right now. So Yeah, all the leaves are literally brown because they're burning. <laughs> yeah. I'm hearing that song in my head. <laughs> Good song. Of course, Ryan, you know this because we went to graduate school together in we Southern did, California at UCLA. Good times, great memories. With another former elucidator, Sumi yes. Chatterjee. Yes, if you're out there, Sumi, and you're listening, we miss you. Former um, and potentially future. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, all doors are open, all roads lead to podcasting. That's what I like to say. <laughs> I, did, I did really find it funny, the, the Pete knew Sumi. That was good. Yeah, that was that was solid. Yeah, so you made your escape from Southern California, got your doctorate, and ended up a couple different places, right? You've been peregrinating. You've been basically <laughs> yeah. a wandering monk. You went to Washington University in St. Louis for a year. Is that right? That is correct, which is amazing because moving from Los Angeles, where, as you guys know, it's super expensive to live, to yeah. move to St. Louis, where I had a huge apartment. It was a one-bedroom in a really cool part of town. 750 bucks a month. Wow. Incredible. I can't <laughs> rent a parking spot for $750 a month. <laughs> I know. And the commute across the entire city to get to campus, never more than 15 minutes, even during rush hour. That sounds all right. Sounds like everything paradise. you just Yeah, everything you just said sounds all right. Yeah. How's the barbecue? The bar- and I lived a block from one of the top barbecue places in the city. So it was amazing. Sounds bomb. Wow, yeah. dude. Okay. And you went from there to <laughs> New Jersey, Princeton, more specifically, to do Which is another where year. I was this afternoon. Uh, it's super close. It's only an hour away from Philadelphia. But yeah, I did another, uh, another postdoc. So two, two postdocs in two years, which is, it sounds ridiculous, but it was like such a blessing because you basically get paid to continuing continuing being a grad student in a way because you're just yeah. doing research. I only taught one, or I taught two classes at, in St. Louis, but at Princeton, I just did research. So it was right. pretty incredible. How far post of doc status can you get? Oh, oh very far indeed. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I was a postdoc plus. <laughs> post, 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 post doc. Post squared. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of what you have to do now in a lot of circumstances to get a tenure track position in academia, depending on your discipline. Sometimes it takes even longer than that. You ended at Villanova, congratulations, by the way, where you're an assistant professor of political science, right? Correct. And yeah, I have yeah, that much right. <laughs> incredible to get that like right before COVID hit because right. the job market is, is tough right now. Yeah, for sure it is. Times are tough all over, man. Yeah, and yeah. everything actually kind of fell apart when we entered graduate school, <laughs> as, it, yeah, as yeah. it happens. Yeah, no, yeah, I entered graduate school right after the global financial crisis. Yeah. Which is what motivated stuff. me to study what I study. Interesting. So it says here, let's, let's go ahead and make the jump. It says here that you specialize in IPE. 
<laughs> Do I have that right? Ipe? <laughs> Most people say IPE, but we can IPE. go with IPE. Oh, now, is that some kind of beer? It's, oh, it's I'm thinking close. of IPA, right? Yeah, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not quite an IPA, but it's quite similar. So it's International Political Economy, Steve. Oh, okay. Now I remember. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Silly me. Uh, it's basically yes. what you studied, Steve, except add some <laughs> economics to it. So it's international okay. relations with trade. Or as, as a lot of the IR folk, the, the old guard, like to say, and I heard this once in a, uh, a job talk. I won't say the school, but this was a year ago. Assume you know these people quite well. They said IPE was a, a vast intellectual wasteland. Ooh. Yeah. And I was like, oh. How do I come somebody's, out from this? <laughs> somebody's got smoke for IPE. That's rough <laughs> yeah. stuff, man. Yeah. yeah we I ain't breathing hard. that. Yeah. So but you're out there on the wasteland surviving? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Surviving right. and thriving. Sounds like it. At Villanova, yeah. Learn so, to live off the land. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you do IPE, and just to quickly draw a distinction, you mentioned that it involves economics. It's right there in the name. I'm I'm more of like a classical IR guy. I came in doing security studies, which is we like to call bombs and bullets, you know, diplomacy, grand strategy, great power relations, stuff like that. You specialize more in the areas of international trade and more subdisciplines like that, like the politics of supply chains, right? Correct. That and currency conflict. So why is it that Ooh. countries engage in currency manipulation and why is it that they stop? That's what my dissertation was about. Okay, great. Well, we're going to jump right in. And, <laughs> we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about because, hey, it's 2020. The international economy is not doing that great <laughs> by all accounts. <laughs> Things seem to be changing very rapidly and in interesting ways. So we figured, hey, why not bring on an expert? Just so happens you were available. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's start. Why does IPE matter, in your opinion? Uh, so economics still matters. So economics, when you think about what economics is, it's just thinking about all the scarce resources in the world and mm -hmm. how do you distribute them, how do you produce them, how do you allocate them? Then the other study of, of political economy, which is what political science started off as, is how do states deal with that? So how do states deal with the, the regulation, the allocation, the distribution, the production of these scarce resources? Okay. International political economy is just throwing in the idea that goods don't just stay within one border. They're going to move across borders. And so you're not just dealing with national governments. You're also dealing with foreign governments and foreign institutions. And so there's going to be more players in the game in the international economy than there are in the domestic economy. Why it matters is after the 2008 global financial crisis, we saw that, and it's in the name, it was a global crisis. It started off in the U.S. but spread throughout the world. That then led to the rise of Donald Trump. It led to Brexit right before Trump was elected. And we see now how intertwined and interdependent the global economy is with the spread and the rapid spread of COVID-19. So it's, it clearly matters. And the nice thing about being a teacher of it is Trump has given me a lot of teaching tools over the last three years. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Maybe so not awesome. Right? It's, yeah, it's good for teaching, not great for the global everything. Uh -huh. Yeah, the global everything. Got it. Okay, so uh, you started out by building a really interesting sort of three-tiered, I guess, disciplinary cake. You went from econ to political econ, and I think made a reference to guys like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, right? <laughs> yeah. Those characters. Uh, I didn't quite say it, but yeah, basically it starts with Adam Smith. So Yeah, the Adam wealth of nations. Adam Smith talks about specialization and the diversification of different parts of the production process. Mm -hmm. So the, the great Charlie Chaplin film, you know, you, you have him, he's, he's just doing this nonstop, trying to turn widgets. This is a podcast, you can't see me doing it, but I'm basically just yeah. turning my hands back and forth. Yeah, um, he's making a very funny gesture. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because he does this nonstop, so when he goes back into society, he's constantly doing this, and it leads to uh, very funny things. Again, he's mm -hmm. twisting his hands. Polarity um, ensues. That's 1776. The next big um, update in international economics is David Ricardo. That's 1809 is his big mm. treatise. The next big update isn't until Hecksher and Olean. Remember those names, Steve? From uh, vaguely something about 
factors of production. Exactly. So you have David okay. Ricardo saying that the reason why you engage in trade is because states have a comparative advantage. Mm-hmm. So the UK is going to trade with Portugal because the UK can't make wine. So they're going to export their cloth in, and they're going to then get from Portugal wine. Mm-hmm. Hexer and Olin, who are Swedish economists, I believe Olin was um, Hexer's grad student. They said that basically you you don't have, or excuse me, you you yeah you don't have perfect mobility of labor between sectors. So if you are working in cloth manufacturing, you can't move into winemaking very easily. No. So because of that, you're going to have different. You're going to have uh, changes in the model. And my advisor, Ron Rogowski, ran with this with the update to that, the Stolper-Samuelson theorem of 1941. Uh-huh. This is a lot of names. We yes. might need to have a, an index for this podcast. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Those guys show that there are distributional effects of these trade models. So basically, if you are the abundant factor or you own the abundant factor in an economy, so let's say you're in the U.S. and we have a lot of capital, if you are an owner of capital, you win from trade. If Got you it. are a laborer, you lose because labor is rather scarce in the U.S. relative to other countries. If you own land, you do well. And we've seen labor lose in the United States, right? Immensely. Due to exposure from trade. So it's interesting exactly. how that, that theory has been borne out. <laughs> exactly. So that leads to cleavages then within societies. You have those who lose out from trade who are going to support protectionism. You have those who win from trade who are going to support more openness. And so that's yeah. basically what has happened with the global economy since the post-World War II era. Got it. Thank you. That was a very concise and I would say also incisive summary of 300 years. Of, <laughs> <laughs> all, well, 250 of, you know, international political economic theory. Yeah, great job. Jumping around a little bit, the big story in 2020, obviously, in the global economy is the same as it is every place else. That's COVID-19. And if we were to boil down COVID's effects on the global economy and no more than three words, what would you say? Can I do one hyphenated word? Sure, that works. (laughs) Thanks, guys. All right, the first one, dual shock. So this was not just a demand shock, which is what we saw with the 2008 global financial crisis. This is Mm -hmm. both a demand shock and a supply shock. So it hit us really hard. So not only are people not trying to buy stuff because they're at home working, but Can't go anywhere. Them right? are at home yeah. working, and so there's yeah. a supply shock where there's not a lot of goods and not a lot of things moving in the market, and also not a lot of people buying it. So I haven't. I've eaten out. I think six times since February. Yeah, that's just we, been pizza. That's it. Yeah, we've gotten some delivery to try to keep some of the restaurants and business around us, but yeah, it's been tough. What you're describing is a situation where the tide goes out and everybody leaves the beach, right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, so everything's empty. So it's been. So it hit us immensely hard. And we can talk about this a little bit later, but the the U.S. has just done a really bad job of dealing not just with COVID, but also with the fallout from from this in the economy. Yeah, absolutely. The Um, other two words, I I went with a D theme that I was thinking about this. Okay, so dual shock is one One of the D. One of the the D. Got it. The second one, deglobalization. Okay. This isn't new. This really started with the global financial crisis of, of 08 and 09, mm-hmm. but this has hit it harder. And this is also dealing with Trump's policies as well, the US-China trade war. And so there's been this move towards deglobalization, and it's getting a little bit worse because of this COVID crisis. And then that plays into the third one, which is diversification. So because supply chains were quite vulnerable to some of these these shocks, especially this dual shock. And a lot of our production or a lot of countries' productions was based out of China. When this crisis hit, it shut down a lot of these supply chains. And if you're just one cog in a supply chain, if that part shuts down, then it shuts down the entire production process. Right. So a lot of the talk recently, which is good for what I do with supply chains, is diversifying the supply chains. So how do we uh, rely less on one country and spread that across to more countries. But we also see countries that are trying to bring that production back home. So it's a calling, right. calling it reshoring. Exactly, yeah. reshoring of production. That's great, and it makes for great headlines. Biden's talking about it as well. But as I said, with international trade theory, going all the way back to David Ricardo, 
countries have a comparative advantage in things. We're not good at, at making textiles. If we brought that back to the U.S., it would just be automated. Yeah, right. <laughs> and maybe it would take some time to install those machines, right? Exactly. This is what yeah. happened in Germany. Germany actually brought, Adidas came back to Germany to start making shoes. And everyone got very excited. Oh, we're going to have these awesome jobs. It's all automated. It's all robots right. making shoes. You have jobs running robots, and there aren't that many of them. And you probably need fairly advanced education to be able to do that. So, or advanced training anyway. So let me yeah. ask something. In some cases, some of these industries are going to be done by machinery and robots. But I, w- I would have to imagine that some industries would actually be done by people, by workers in the U.S., and that there would be an adaptation period of 10 or 20 years for people to decide to go into these industries, to learn how to do them. But like maybe over the long term, it could be argued that it would be a good thing to bring certain industries back. Is there something to that? Or like, is it not going to happen that way? I think it... So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. One is to do a lot of the things that we used to do, and we've kind of offshored that to places like Mexico, which is very close, or China, Cambodia, Vietnam, is we don't have the, the skill base to actually do a lot of those things. And so we need, rather than going through high school and we're always pushing for students to go to college, certain students don't need to go to college. They maybe shouldn't go to college, maybe have better trade schools. So one of the things, the good things that Trump did, and it's very few with international trade. I don't know if you're allowed to say he did anything good. (laughs) (laughs) I've occasionally said he's he's done good (laughs) stuff. It's all right. Safe space. He started an apprenticeship program along with uh, what Volkswagen does in, in Germany which was getting high school students to work during an off period with Volkswagen. But the investment was uh, minuscule compared to what Germans do. I think it was like on an order of like one two hundredth of what they put in. It was like we put in like two million and they have about three, four hundred million that they're putting into it. Right. Um, Completely so different order of magnitude. <laughs> yeah. So the, the main issue with a lot of this is it's, it's really an issue of inequality. So because we have such great inequality, certain people are going to be trained better. They're going to be in the uh, sectors that are going to be doing very well. And then the others are just kind of getting left behind. And with globalization, those who are being left behind are, are as we would say, the, the losers from globalization, not in like a pejorative way, but if you think of this in terms of... In an objective groups, way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in an objective way, certain mm-hmm. groups win, certain groups lose. The U.S. is known for being terrible of helping out those who lose. So the story in in American politics is, why do Americans hate redistribution? You need to have some sort of redistribution to help out those who are losing from trade. And we have a trade adjustment assistance program, the TAA, which has been around since the end of World War II. Maybe before then, actually, I got to look at the history. But it's always been underfunded. It's never been able to get money to people easily or quickly to be retrained. So if you were working in auto manufacturing and some of that went to Mexico, you should be able to have some sort of retrain that gets them to something that we're, that we're very good at, like making microchips, for instance. Right. Uh, but we're very bad at that because the American idea of redistribution is just so bananas. Right there doesn't seem to be much incentive to make programs that get money in the U.S. to people who need it run smoothly. As we've seen with unemployment across the states during the COVID crisis. But you were just talking about diversification and reshoring. And I wonder, are those things that could ultimately help the losers of trade or like the people who've been left behind by trade? Could that turn... I guess that's what populists argue, right? Is it like bringing industry back here would help the middle class or help rebuild the middle class, something along those lines? Yeah. And I think, oh God, this is, so this is the second good thing that Trump has done. If I get to the third one, I feel like he's going to appear. We just um, end the podcast. And <laughs> 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 we all go home. Oh wait, we're already home. Never let's, just, let's give this caveat. <laughs> if he's done anything good, it was by accident. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The, the 2016 campaign he ran on a campaign that the U.S. worker has been screwed by globalization. And he's been talking about this since NAFTA. This is not a new thing for him. It's true. He's been very consistent since the 80s. But he hasn't done enough to actually help those who are losing out. So he's been fighting a 21st century war with 20th century ammunition. So he's using tariffs. 
tariffs don't do much anymore. All they're doing are, is protecting a particular sector. So every, every president has done this. So George Bush had a famous case where he tried to protect the steel industry because those were very important for his reelection in 2004. It, he put tariffs on uh, imports of steel from Europe. Europe knew that he was doing this to protect his base. And so they put countervailing tariffs through the WTO on industries that were important for him. So it was Harley Davidson and oranges in Florida. Right. He quickly so net, took net down net the loss. tariffs. <laughs> yeah. So the tariffs didn't do anything. Obama did the same thing after the Great Recession. He put tariffs on tires. And so we no longer had a lot of, of tires coming in from, from China. But every one of those jobs that was saved cost taxpayers a million dollars per job. Is that an efficient use of money to save jobs for people making tires? Also, as Sumi and I found, found out when we blew out a tire coming back from the Grand Canyon, this led to a market for renting tires because tires what? became more expensive. What in God's name? It cost consumers more money to buy tires because of this added tax. Tire rental. Trump has done the exact same thing. So he's doing everything that everyone else has done, but he's doing it to everybody at the same time, all allies and adversaries. Right? Yeah. And yeah. they're all hitting him in the exact same way. So this, yeah. so this year, we are going to spend a record amount on bailing out farmers. So he's basically buying farmers' votes. I think it's $37 billion, which is a, a, almost a fourfold increase from the average over the last 20 years of how much we paid in subsidies to farmers just because of the trade war with, with China. So does that mean the U.S. government is buying commodities like corn and wheat, et cetera? Yes. Yeah, we've been doing that for years. So the uh, renewable, the, uh, the ethanol fuel program, right? Exactly. The ethanol is fuel a way program. Of, of getting grain out of these giant government silos and doing something with it, even though it makes no sense. Exactly. Right. But, <laughs> Exactly. It costs a lot to change that into, you're using a lot of energy to convert that into ethanol. Yeah. Um, it's maybe not a good, a good use of this because it also right. just led to a spike in prices and people started growing corn for ethanol because it was being subsidized. You're burning money and food. <laughs> are, there, are there cars that run on ethanol on the roads? There actually um, were in yeah, were the, yeah, maybe 15 years ago. Um, I remember Ford made some. GM made some. Yeah, they did not sell, and this whole initiative went nowhere. They're corny. Yeah, super <laughs> but these, corny. But these, so I don't want to disparage subsidies. So Steve and I were talking about this the other day, which is some subsidies do quite well. So DARPA, which is a, a defense allocation of money, funded a lot of things that we still use. So GPS, the internet. DARPAnet. Uh, Tesla Motor So they, pay, they paid Al Gore directly for the internet? They paid Al Gore directly for the internet. But Tesla was built off of this money from the Defense Department. So all these things lead to really good investments sometimes. Uh, the case that often gets disparaged is Solyndra under Obama. It was just right. run poorly. It was based on a model that if silicone was very expensive, then the way that they were making these cells actually worked out quite well. This is uh, solar panels, right? Solar panels, correct. Uh, correct. But as silicone dropped in price in, I think, 2010, it was no longer profitable for them to make these cells. And so they went, they went bankrupt. And so it's often used as, a, as an exception. It's like, that is like the case we on the right are going to use, not me, but the right is going to use against any sort of government subsidies. But getting back to Pete's point, to bring those jobs back, we need to do it in industries that one, we can compete in, and two, are good for our long-run growth. Yeah. And protecting the coal industry is not good for our long-term growth because we already have fossil fuel companies that are investing in renewable energies. They know that this is not a long-term approach for them to make money. And so we're, he's still fighting these, these battles of the basically the 19th century, not even the 20th century. <laughs> in, the, in the case of coal, it is absolutely <laughs> the 19th century. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and when you talk about things like fracking, you're, that's 20th century, right? That's oil. And natural gas. Natural gas, arguably 21st. We're going to need that for some period of time. But mm. yeah, when Biden and I suppose AOC and people like that talk about, you know, the, the Green New Deal and creating millions of green jobs, this is kind of what they're talking about, right, Ryan? Exactly. So it's, it's making it's, a forward-looking investment. Yeah, it's investing in things that we, instead of importing silos and things for, or turbines from, from China, we should be making them in-house. If that's the, the, the move, 
why are we not at the forefront of this this adventure into uh, renewable energy? Uh, yeah. Why don't we put the investments in? And the good thing about these investments, especially when you have interest rates so low, we could talk about modern monetary theory if you want to. Um, I can talk, talk. We did maybe a whole other episode on that. Um, yeah. With interest rates so low, it makes sense to invest in that stuff now because of the multiplier effect. So every dollar that is, that is spent on investing and producing something, those people then go out and they spend money in their local economies, and then that's just going to multiply throughout the economy. And so it was, it was uh, estimated that the, I think it was $850 billion was the stimulus package after the Great Recession or in, during the Great Recession. Every dollar spent tended to lead to $2 in the economy. And so it has a really important impact on the, on the overall economy. And so right now would, would be the absolute best time to do it. Or for Trump to finally have that infrastructure package. <laughs> infrastructure week. This is infrastructure <laughs> week. We mean it this time. <laughs> he's been in so many so many trucks on the White House lawn talking uh-huh. about infrastructure and like what we need to do, and he he's done nothing. It's bizarre because the guy is a builder. He's built buildings, right? That's his whole brand, and that's what he supposedly likes to do. He hasn't built anything, and that just tells you that he is basically beholden to the GOP and the GOP's policy priorities, which do not include building infrastructure mm-hmm. or spending money, <laughs> mm-hmm. at least not on that, right? Yeah. Uh, it's more of a short-term tax giveaway to ex- the extremely wealthy through various means. Do you think he also just doesn't want to work with Pelosi just out of <laughs> yeah. pure saltiness? Yes. At this point, yeah. yeah. I think earlier on in his term, he was not as salty towards Pelosi and actually had some positive things to say about her if I'm remembering correctly. But that has long since passed, especially after she te- tore up his uh, State of the Union address right in <laughs> yes. front of him. And right. did this thing uh, called impeach. Like he, she literally impeached Oh, him. that's there's, right. There's no coming back from that. It's so easy to forget that 2020 started with an impeachment. <laughs> yeah. And you guys were also talking about the, the bombing of Soleimani. Like, yes, these, these that's right. The assassination. In 2020. It's crazy. That yeah. stuff has like... I'm not like I've completely forgot about it. It hardly seems relevant given that's everything right. else that's happened. I think for the rest of our lives, we'll look at this year and think about how bizarre it is that X, Y, and Z all happened in the same year because it just doesn't feel possible. But no, yeah, it's not X, Y, and Z. It's like 14 letters of the alphabet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one after the other. I would start with A because there's still another. What three months remaining? Right, <laughs> three months and change. That there are, yeah, oh. yeah. So we're probably around J, and uh, that leaves plenty more letters. Let's get back to the pandemic and its effect on the global economy. What has happened in the four biggest economies in the world? The biggest being the European Union, right? Actually, in some PPP terms, it's still China. Somewhere okay. around China, China, USA, and the EU have been kind of dancing around the top three for the last. I guess. Like, I guess it depends how you count decade, PPP yeah. versus nominal, right? Yeah, and that's a good point. PPP refers to basically what you can actually buy in those countries give, with the given amount of money. So right. it accounts for cost of living and strength of currency. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you internationalize yeah. a currency, then and they all we all share one currency. Who is the leader? It's actually a pro. I think it's China. I think it might China, be. I think China's the, the biggest economy right now. Yeah, it might be. All right. Like that, yeah, start, start wherever you like then. <laughs> uh, let's go. You said the EU. Let's start with the EU because the EU is, yeah. is the positive one. So okay. I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the EU. I also study European integration. So it's my other, my other subfield. You're um, a polymath, my friend. <laughs> something like that. I kind of fell into it because I... I studied economics in Berlin for two years. And while there, I got very interested in the European Union. So I've been studying it on and off since. But the the EU, so I think they're just having a cyclical problem rather than a structural problem. So I think most of the other uh, governments and economies are having more structural, meaning like long-term. The EU has long-term problems, but COVID, I don't think really exposed that. These have been going on for a while. So in the EU, they've done relatively well. They're still in a recession, but unemployment has not dropped nearly as much as it has in the U.S. Yeah. And it's due to the, the, the short-term work system that they have there, really started by Germany, the Kurzarbeit program, which is literally short work. So 
during a recession, rather than people being fired and then you you pay them through unemployment insurance, you pay them through your employer. And so they just reduce the working hours, and then the government um, subsidizes about seventy percent of the remaining wages. Right. And so that keeps them working. So that way you don't need to retool once the economy opens back up. It minimizes the efficiency loss that comes from like firing, rehiring, retraining, and just the resorting that needs to happen, right? Yeah. The, the Nobel Prize winners in economics, and I think it was 2008 or seven, studied labor market frictions. And there's a ton of frictions in labor markets where it's not just people looking for jobs, there's other people um, that are looking for you to fill that position. Right. And so you don't have to deal with those labor market frictions if you just keep them employed. And so the unemployment rate in, in Germany, I think, dropped to like 4% or 5%. So it's just like, it was a blip. It was not, not much. It's been worse in places like Italy and Spain but they've had longer-term structural issues that they've been dealing with, which has also led to the rise of populist parties in both those countries, which, again, we can talk about that later. But yeah, the yeah. good news, and you guys talked about this a few episodes back. I don't even know because I don't even know what month it is. You guys <laughs> talked about the EU fiscal union that was starting up, this so-called Hamiltonian moment that right. may be happening. So that was big. That's really it's a huge thing. So the The main argument against the EU for so long is that they've had this economic integration, which was supposed to lead to political integration, but they never quite got there. And so if you have a monetary union, you need to have some way of dealing with these big shocks, in this case, a a dual shock again, to bring it back to that. And the EU finally has a fiscal union where they can deal with that, 750 billion uh, euros to deal with it. Some, it's only half is grants and the other half is loans, but it's still quite large given that it's from the supranational authority to the member states. And then each member state also has their own fiscal stimulus. And so this is going to go a long way of helping them dealing with the asymmetric effects of this, this dual shock. Nice. Yeah. And the critical point is that the strong economies for the first time basically saw it in their own self-interests to help the weak economies through this in a way that actually makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Germany and, and, and France uh, joined in. I mean, they started the, the European coal and, uh, and steel community. So those, the, the union of those two is what led to the modern-day EU. But they've been, since the financial crisis of 2008 and then the following Eurozone crisis, they haven't been willing to help out those who have been struggling and they've been pushing austerity. And this is the opposite of austerity. And so it's, I think it's really, really good for the European Union. That's awesome, man. All right, let's jump over to China. What's going on in China? <laughs> like how you said it's awesome, like it's really good for me. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you. I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of the European Union, and I want to see that project succeed. Yeah, um, me too. I think it's important for the future of the world, in my mm-hmm. opinion. So mm-hmm. I'm all about it. So China is the other relatively positive story, even though... They, they messed up. They, they hid this for a month. They didn't do a very good job of sharing the information. With the SARS epidemic in 2004, they did a very good job of sharing with the CDC who were based in Beijing at that point, um, and they were able to deal with it. One of my colleagues at Villanova was actually working in the State Department in Beijing at that time, so she has a lot of good anecdotes from that, that time period. But they did relatively well. So they, they dropped. So this year, they're, they're currently, or this past quarter, they're growing at 3.2%. So they're actually growing again. They only dropped to about negative uh, 7% as like their, their biggest drop in, in economic output. But they were projecting that they would be growing around 7% for the next few decades per year. That's right. probably not going to happen. It's not going to happen, I don't think, for a while. So it's estimated they're probably going to grow somewhere between 1% and 3% this year which isn't bad considering the, the dual shock that, that we had and they had. Their issue, though, is more structural. And so this is a, a long-term issue with China, which is they've been trying to transition to a consumer-based economy for a while, and it's very difficult to do so. They've run an economy where they forced households to save, and they've basically repressed labor. So in the U.S., uh, about 60% of income, 60, about two-thirds of income goes to labor, even though it seems like it, it, we don't do well, but it's estimated about 60%. It's only about 40% in China. And so their inequality wow. is quite high. So they, yeah. to get out of this, they need to start consuming more because they don't have the export prowess that they, they once had. And so that's their major issue is how do they deal with this? Because right Isn't now, that, they, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. 
Isn't that tied to political repression, at least to some extent? Yeah. So one is going to be with with the with G now in power for for way longer. Uh, I think this is going to uh, last longer than than a lot of economists and IR scholars have have guessed. But yeah, so a lot of it is a little bit of the of the political repression, but also they if they don't have a consumer based economy. They can't keep growing. It's more like the Soviet Union currently, just right now in these few um, few quarters, because all they've really done is just really shovel-ready things. So they've invested in infrastructure, industrial production. But if no one's buying their goods, then it's not going to help them grow sustainably for a long time. So we may not see them get to 6% growth for a few years, which is where that was their low end. They were growing about 10% for, for years before this. Right. And and the word on China from China specialists mostly has always been these guys need to keep growing at a at a brisk pace in order to stay in power. And by they I mean the Chinese Communist Party. Like that's kind of the, the social contract. That's the deal. So I guess you could look at any sort of slowdown or reversal along these lines as a risk for them, right? Yeah. And now they don't even have the TikTok. No, and the I TikTok's had to say being it taken like, away. Like my parents would say it. TikTok is it's now going to a Trump. It's going to someone who supported the Trump campaign. To Oracle. Well, that remains to be seen. It, it the China Xi Jinping is not going to allow TikTok to just slip out of China's hands in this humiliating fashion. We've already seen that he's not allowing the algorithms that drive TikTok to leave China, and that's where all the value is. Yes. So I think this is sort of like a kabuki dance by which both sides are climbing down to a certain extent. Um, a Trump well, supporter well, gets to buy the asset in theory, but China doesn't actually sell anything. So, yeah, What would China do without Jason Derulo um, and his TikTok dances with yeah, Will Smith? I, I don't know. I downloaded um, TikTok for a week, and literally that's all you see is him and Derulo. Will Smith and this weird, this weird family. I don't know who they are, but it's like an adorable kid with like a little beanie hat on. Yeah. They're probably like the fifth most famous people on earth right now. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever they are. TikTok's amazing. I started plugging the podcast on TikTok and was roundly ignored. I don't think it's the right platform for us. How did you plug it, Steve? Did you dance? No, that was the issue. I can't dance. That's the critical problem, man. Yeah. Dab? (laughs) I think you I gotta do something. Dab- dabbing is like very 2014. It was yeah. That's it's been a minute for dabbing. Whatever, <laughs> even flossing is like. I think you, know, you would go probably... viral if you dab on TikTok to promote the show. <laughs> I think I think that's the way to go about. It's this. our it's our only. I shot. promise you. We're plugged in. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of TikTok and and uh, deals by Trump supporters, what's going on in the United States? Uh, struggle bus. Yeah, we live we live here, so we kind of know, but we also kind of don't know, and we need you to tell us. Okay, so if you, you maybe I don't know, it may have been weeks ago, it may have been I don't know, but the end of the second quarter, yeah, we found out that we contracted by about thirty two percent on an annualized rate. That, that sounds is the bad. Biggest contraction we've had since we've recorded this. That's bad. So it's about uh, we shrunk. I think it was like close to like eight percent um, for the yeah. quarter. Yeah, but if you analyze that over uh, the next three quarters or next two quarters, then that's what you would get. Clearly, we're not there. We're starting a slight recovery, but we're not doing well. And it started before the crisis. So before the crisis, really since since two thousand eight, again going back to that financial crisis, inequality has been increasing, and wages have not been increasing for those at the lower end of the income distribution. Uh, and this was exacerbated by Trump's tax cut in 2017. It was not tax reform, it was just a tax cut. And that led to a huge uh, drop, excuse me, a huge boom in our debt, uh, debt load, which during good times, during the, the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, you should be paying down the debt. And so we added to it. And so you basically, he took, he took ammunition out of the bazooka for when we do have a financial crisis, which happened on his term. Uh, and now Republicans don't want to spend. And that's like basically their play every time. They're okay with tax cuts. They're okay having certain things that they agree with in terms of spending. But when it comes to when they actually need to spend it and when it's super cheap to do so, they don't want to. And so currently our biggest issue is intransigence from, the, from Congress in general. 
but also those who, so Trump, one of the things he talked about a lot was black unemployment and how he was the best president for uh, the black community. Yes, that's right. It's completely incorrect. But unemployment for uh, the black population was decreasing. And that was a, a trend since 2008 that it had been decreasing since the, the height of the recession. It tends to be that those who are the most marginalized in uh, the labor market will tend to get hired last and they'll tend to be the first ones to be let go during a shock to the economy. Mm-hmm. And so you saw that we got to record uh, lows for unemployment for different groups in U.S. society. But the people who were the last to get hired are now the ones who have the highest unemployment rate. So you see women and the African-American community and Hispanics with unemployment rates that are very, very high. And it's because it tends to be, those tend to be the people who are working in hospitality. So with the, the CARES Act, that led to a lot of people being hired back. So people who were fired and got hired back, 30% of those got fired a second time. So the economy is not doing well. For those of us who can work from home, we're doing fine. And it's a blessing that we can do this. And we can have, uh, I can teach via Zoom. I don't need to, to go in person. We can but put those, on a vanity podcast. It's great. <laughs> we can put on a vanity. We can do TikTok dances and dabbing all over the place. Yeah. What sucks is those workers who are working in, in hospitality um, yeah. and the service industry. And as you guys know, in Los Angeles, that's a lot of the industry in LA is, is the service industry and the art. It sure is. And in addition, the sort of minorities that are still employed, a lot of them work in so-called essential functions, right? So that means that they're exposed to the virus at much higher rates. And that has meant a real differential impact in terms of health outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's just uh, injustice compounded by additional injustice. And then you have, of course, uh, the George Floyd murder and as the, the match in, in the tinderbox. Yeah, it just compounds and, everything. Just years of, of dissatisfaction with the way this labor market works in the U.S. Yeah. Starting since 1980, it's really the neoliberal policies pushed by Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s that has led to this economy, which is great for certain people. It's terrible for the majority. And even though I will always um, support open markets, free trade, because it is welfare improving for overall society, we have more goods that we can purchase. We tend to do things more efficiently. You need to figure out how to help those who have lost. And currently, we have people who are losing terribly, not just because of globalization, but because of this, this dual shock. Yeah. We just it's not reflected that. <laughs> in the stock market either. The stock market is ridiculous. Well, like, so my theory about the stock market is that all the mon- money we're printing has to go somewhere, right? It's going into asset price inflation pretty yeah. directly. Correct. That's, uh, with, with interest rates low, people want to put their money somewhere. They're going to seek a higher return, and they're going to go to the stock market. Yeah. But also the companies that are doing well are tech companies. So we had to move everything to Zoom. Everyone's buying. I just got a new computer, a new, a new monitor because I need that to, to teach. Um, Technology is constantly uh, going kaput. And so they're doing very well, but it's not reflecting the overall economy. And I, if Trump wins, I don't see how this economy gets better. He's not, no. he's not the person for this. No, like he's he's made noises about you know helping his constituents with trade policies, with industrial policy, national champions, and so on, blowing out defense budgets, putting people back to work in the factories. But none of it has transpired, and none of it is likely to, to transpire. So it seems like he's turned to delivering the cultural goods, right? Mm-hmm. It was estimated. So how much is 800 bucks to you guys? It's a good sum of money. It's a good amount. It's estimated that it costs the average um, household, or ever, yeah, average household, $800 for the U.S.-China trade war. It's just in one year. So $800 wow. across 330 million people. That's um, a that's how, much, <laughs> that's how much it costs per household for this. Like, that's insane. And so it's not, even though he's protecting his certain industries, we're now going to be spending $37 billion to support agriculture. It's not helping out overall society. And so that is his major problem. Got it. Among others. Not so great. Oh, I should should do one more plug, though. One positive thing for the U.S. Okay. 
because I study currency things, monetary policy actually has improved. So Jerome Powell made shockwaves recently, the, the head of the uh, Federal Reserve, saying that they're no longer going to only focus on tightening monetary policy to stop overheating, meaning mm-hmm. they're going inflation, to... Inflation, right? Exactly. So, so they're not going to just focus on inflation. So those, those, as I said before, the communities who tended to be hired last and then they're the first to, to hurt, they're not going to focus on the overheating, the inflation part. They're actually going to make policy that gets closer to full employment. So as soon as we get to what we call overheating or inflation starts to get to its 2% target, they're not going to stop their policies. They're going to keep it going a little while to help out those who have usually and historically been left behind. Yeah. And in addition, inflation is actually very good for people who are debtors, right? Who hold debt because the debt gets inflated away. Your currency basically gets less valuable. And that means that whatever you need to pay back is easier to pay back. It's worth less. It's less good for people who hold assets because basically those assets are denominated in whatever currency that's being inflated. So they're basically melting away, Mm -hmm. Um, which is another reason why you see people going to the stock market and making risky plays. They're searching for returns because we're headed towards this inflationary environment, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that actually plays right into, I believe, the fourth economy, which is Japan. Ah, yes. We did Japan, <laughs> what, two weeks ago? Right, Pete? Yeah, two, I Shinzo think. Abe? Yeah. Two weeks ago. And now we have, did you guys, I don't remember, did you talk, was Yoshihide it? Suga. Yeah, Suga. was that, that was just recently, so that was after the, the podcast. You guys were talking about the about Shinzo stepping down, and now yes. we have the new prime minister. Yeah, so, we have Suga. Japan has been fed a spoonful of Suga. <laughs> <laughs> Makes nice. the policy go down. Uh, landed, I don't know. Landed, that landed right here. If you said it while dabbing, I would have. I would have laughed harder. Uh, Falling out of my chair. <laughs> they don't know I wasn't dabbing. Come on, man. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Now go they have on. to go to the. Now they have to go to YouTube and watch this. <laughs> so in Japan, they had deflation for over a decade, and they had massive debt. And so that plays right. right into what, what Steve was saying. The lost decade, right? Yeah, the, they had a lost decade of economic growth because they had massive amounts of debt and they couldn't get their economy to be inflated. And so why inflation matters, imagine if you're going to a store and you find out that the next day, the price could be 20% less. Are you going to buy it today? No, you're, you're not dumb. You're going to wait till tomorrow and buy it for 20% less. That is deflation. Nobody wants to spend money because prices are constantly decreasing. So a little bit of inflation is good. So when people say like inflation is terrible, hyperinflation is bad. When prices are doubling every day, that's bad. But that's really bad because then you need to take a wheelbarrow for, full of cash to buy that same uh, loaf of bread, right? Exactly. And then you see shelves um, are barren because everyone just buys right away because they're afraid that if they buy tomorrow, it's going to cost twice as much. And there's and so also no incentive to produce. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's, so that's what's been happening with Japan. Japan also has these structural issues. So they had also one of their worst slumps in history. So they contracted by almost 8% in quarter two, excuse me, between quarter one and quarter two. Uh, as an annualized rate of about 28%. So they are also not doing great. And because of the dual shock, they also have a decrease in consumption. And so it's a really an export-led economy, but they also consume a lot. It's a very large economy. And so without the consumption, it's, it, they're not going to grow. And we've seen that exports from Japan have also decreased. So they're, they're not doing great. And one of the things that Shinzo did, this goes back to the supply chains and reshoring, is... In the, the most recent budget negotiations, he put in $2.2 billion that he earmarked to reshore their supply chains, mm. specifically from China. And so it was incentivizing firms to move production from China back to Japan. And it's the only government who has had like, actual money earmarked for it. It's $2.2 billion. That's a significant amount of money. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that is basically for national security reasons. It's to insulate the Japanese economy from this sort of situation where supply chains get broken by a pandemic, right? Correct. I wouldn't call it national security per se, mm. because it's, this is not the medical argument that has been uh, discussed in the US as well as in Europe. Uh, this is actually for auto manufacturing. So it's bringing okay. parts of that production process from China back to Japan. I see. But they could okay. use national security because Trump did it. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Assuming that 
other countries follow Japan's lead, will that lead to a dissolution of global trade and sort of a resumption of like competing blocks? Because I seem to remember from history that tends not to end very well. Yeah. So teaching IPE at UCLA for years. So right after the financial crisis, I got to teach this a lot. And one of the things that I could point to is the overall world economy and world leaders did a very good job of coming together and cooperating during this this really rough shock to the global economy to figure out what do we do because we haven't had this sort of shock since 1929. And what do we do in 1929, 1930? We have the the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, which raise the average tariff on uh, all imports to the U.S. to about 60%. And when the U.S. did that, not shockingly, every other industrialized country in this tit-for-tat move did the exact same thing. So you had this trade war where everyone is turning inward rather than turning outward. And so you had the G20 spring up after 2007-2008 crisis, and they talked about how do we stop this from happening again. So they kept trade open. They discussed monetary policy. So you didn't have the currency devaluations that we had in the interwar years, which led to the rise of fascism in Germany. Right. Competitive currency devaluations leading to hyperinflation, right? More or less. Exactly. So we did we did really well as a an international bunch or motley crew of countries. That was Um, last time. What's happened this time? (laughs) This time, so Ian Bremmer has a great great way of talking about it. So Ian Bremmer, head of the Eurasia Group, he calls it G0. So that's right. G20 to G7. uh, G7 is just the largest economy. It's G20. includes a lot of the emerging market economies. Now we're at G0 where we have no cooperation between countries uh, and no world leader. So the EU, I think, is leading probably the most. But it's probably Germany, right? Yeah. If we have anybody. It's really, it's really Germany. And what's going to happen when, when Angela Merkel leaves? Like, is that, are they still going to hold that mantle? Yeah. So we're not cooperating. Can Joe Biden fix that? I don't know. We saw that Bush really ran the U.S. attitudes towards the U.S. into the ground. And you guys had talked about it on the show before. George W. Bush still may be the worst president. I don't know. I think, I think Trump might be up there now. <laughs> If Trump gets another four years, yeah, uh, yeah, he will certainly surpass Bush. Bush had eight years to ruin things. Yeah. And he but did. Obama was able to turn it around. He made, he made uh, good use of diplomatic trips. So he went to the Middle East right away to try and patch things over. Yeah. And he had this rock star status throughout Europe. I don't know if Joe, like cool Uncle Joe Biden has that, but he's not Trump. And so he gets us closer to uh, a G2, G3. Maybe we get back to a G20 summit uh, where we talk about these things. And it's about the collective good, not just America first. Right. Would you say that any such process is going to have to start with like resumption of some kind of bilateral relationship between the United States and China? Yeah, I don't know. I think this is going to be a... a soft cold war for a little while. Um, kind of looks that way at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's too. We're now in a bipolar world. It's it's two major economies, as we said before. China's economy is probably bigger. They have more people. I don't think this is like the Thucydian trap that like Graham Allison has talked about. Yeah, uh, that doesn't work as well with nuclear weapons in no, the mix. <laughs> no, but I think there's going to be this economic statecraft for a while. Trump, I think, is overplaying his hand by using sanctions way too much. Yeah. So the U.S. dollar is still the 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 currency that most economic activity is done in. About sixty, no, close to eighty percent of trade is done in the U.S. dollar. But you have countries that are starting to de-dollarize because they don't trust the dollar. So the EU has surpassed the sanctions on Iran. Uh, you have Russia, who no longer has much U.S. dollars in its central bank coffers. They've moved to gold, is my understanding. <laughs> yeah, and now we have huge, uh, huge spikes in gold prices recently as well. Yeah, there's a reason for that, because people are seeing what's going on in the United States, and they don't like it. Yes. And they're, so, they're voting with not their dollars. <laughs> yes. They're buying stuff, other stuff to hold with their dollars. That means the United States dollar is in decline, right? Yes. So I think Trump is being outsmarted. It's not shocking. Mm. Uh, we're using 21st century weapons now. 
but using it for the wrong purpose. I think he's overplaying his hand. Yeah, right. So this sort of profligate use of these secondary sanctions and things like this, weaponizing the international banking system, weaponizing the currency, could lead to a break at some point in the future. Do you think that's near term, medium term, or like just a ways off? I think it's a ways off. So, yeah. Steve, you and I had talked about this uh, like weeks ago. Again, I don't know. It's it's like September fifty eighth right now. Life um, is a blur, man. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about it, and my original thinking was, okay, there has been. I've been following the de-dollarization since Russia started doing it, and then you saw the EU try to surpass the SWIFT payment system through through New York City, and then you had China also de-dollarizing a little bit, not buying as many treasuries. So what does that mean for the U.S. dollar? Are we still going to be the, the central reserve currency? I think we still will. Because of this, this currency paradigm I told you about, which is most trade is still done in U.S. dollars because yeah. people, people don't want to deal with the, the change in exchange rates as much. And so it's easier just to bill it in U.S. dollars. And as long as we print the dollar, that's a huge advantage, right? Yeah, it's great. Can, it's great for us. Yeah, we can print our own debt and people will buy it and we have no problem, right? It's when they stop buying it, we stop being a reserve currency, we have to get really serious about the debt, and it may be too late at that point. (laughs) Yeah, we're not the best at dealing with the debt during good times. Clinton did a decent job. Clinton was the one guy who did it, right? (laughs) Yeah, but that was also a historical relic relic of the end of the Cold War. We didn't have to spend as much on the The peace dividend. Exactly. So he he had a surplus of funds from that as well, but he did a good job of balancing the budget. I don't see uh, future administrations being able to deal with a lot of the issues, in particular entitlements or thing not entitlements, things that we paid into that we should get in return because we paid for them. Social Security, Medicare, Medicare is what you're talking yes, about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, guys like us are starting to think about really boring things like that that we would really prefer not to, but. <laughs> Here we are. So, all right, let's let's skip ahead. Let's look into the crystal ball. Professor, Professor Welges, what's going to happen to us? Where are we going? What's going to happen in one in the, year? In the short term. In the short term. Okay. Yeah, in one year. Let's start with one year. I don't think double dip recession, but this idea of a V-shaped uh, recovery is completely... It's nonsense. Um, yeah, it, it seems to be a W, except that the W is only have two troughs <laughs> and we might end up with more than that right or it may not even be another trough it may just be a very slow slow expansion ah uh, so, so the the nike swoosh or the the square root yes the nike swoosh or the square root i like the nike swoosh better because well yeah. we'll go square root but it's it's not sure. i don't think it's going to be good we should have had a second stimulus months ago yeah that would have helped people um, spending money because we are a consumption-based economy. You need to spend money. Yeah, but the almighty uh, consumer, right? I, Consumers I aren't doing I, much right now. No, everyone's. I, I'm holding money because I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not spending a lot of money because I also don't know if there's going to be a vaccine. So I'm also just not going anywhere. Yeah, why would you? I'm not going anywhere either. Yeah, I try no. really hard not to go anywhere. Yeah, I'm really and, proud uh, of it. I've done well. Wild, wildfires are really helping me out with that. We should have gotten a second stimulus months ago. It looks like we're not going to get a set second stimulus before the election. So that's truly mind-boggling that that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's it's bizarre, but but here we are, right? How does the author of the Art of the Deal and runs on a campaign of being such a deal maker not able to make a deal? on something where he still has control of the Senate. It How turns out this? that he's he's <laughs> terrible at deal making. Like he's really awful. bad at it. He, he's he's decent at lying, but that's only one part of deal making. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually you have to a- offer something of value and he seems to be pretty bad at that part. Okay, so that's one year, not a pretty picture. How about 5 years? So, if you recall after the global financial crisis, they have the rise of the Tea Party. Oh boy! we increased our debt, right? So yeah. we, 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 most economists were saying we should have spent like $1.5 trillion, uh, in stimulus. We got about $800 billion. Mm-hmm. So not even quite enough and not many shovel-ready things because it's still politics. So a lot of it went to things that were more long-term. 
I don't think we get a good amount of stimulus. If Biden's elected, I think we do. And I think we actually get this sort of Green New Deal, which I think would be very good for the economy because it's, it's both- And the world. <laughs> and the world. It's shovel ready. And yeah. meaning that we can do it right away. And it's a good long-term investment. Yeah. But because of the Republican Party and their focus on debt, I think we're going to be fixated with reducing that debt for years. But- we also have a problem with raising taxes. And so wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that? that Trump has divested the GOP of its budget hawkery? Yes. Uh, I they're, mean, they still say that they're budget hawks, but they're very clearly not, right? They are tax hawks. They don't want taxes. Okay. Right. <laughs> they don't want to deal with, you know, Reagan had this idea of starving the beast. They're doing the same thing. They're trying to starve the beast, but they don't actually want to pull back from, you know, spending. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they want to spend money that they don't have and are refuse to give. That's yeah. the new fiscal orthodoxy for the Republican Party. It's weird. It's it's insane. So I think we're going to for the next 5 years it's going to be fixation on debt. It's already it's already started. Uh, yeah. super it's super annoying especially with these low interest rates. And we're in the middle of a terrible, one of the worst recessions we've had since the Great Depression. I hope we're not going to be in a depression. I think we, it'll just be like a prolonged recession, meaning it won't go into the years. I think it's just going to be a few quarters. But the debt is going to be an issue, and it's going to keep us moving quite slowly as an economy. Right. Would you say that there's the possibility of, for instance, a lost decade as a result of that debt and depressed spending? I think because of the, the, the privilege of having the U.S. dollar as the major mm. reserve currency, we still will be fine. Okay, but got it. we're slowly moving away from greatness. Got it. And I think it was, this remark was attributed to Bismarck apocryphally, but inaccurately. God favors fools, drunkards in the United States of America. Something like that. Yeah. We still have a lot of lucky things going for us and the reserve currency is one of them. Yeah. Um, Go to any bar in any city and you will see a bunch of people there. And <laughs> they're probably <laughs> spreading COVID, making the yeah. economy worse. Drunk American fools. So they're highly favored <laughs> by God, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> the luckiest of all, right? Okay. So that's midterm. What about long-term? What about uh, 10, 20, 30 years out? Are the Chinese just going to take over the way things are looking? I think we constantly, we just have this, this kind of bipolar world for a while. Mm. Um, going back to what Pete had uh, talked about before about reshoring and, and these jobs that we're trying to get back here in the U.S., I think we're going to see more uh, automation and it's going to be quicker. And so over the next 10 years, we already saw firms moving to automation. If you saw that, the Obama production of that Netflix documentary on what was it called? What was it called? I, I don't remember. American Factory, right? Yes, exactly. And it won the Oscar for Best Documentary over For Sama, which I told you don't watch unless you want to cry. Right. Um, <laughs> great movie, by the way. Just it's uh, it, it's very sad. You already you see in that documentary that they automate. The, the, the workers aren't able to work in that, that factory and they, just, they automate basically everything. And I think we're going to see a swifter move to automation over the next 10 years. And I think we're going to see more of a pendulum swing to the left. So we've seen that the right has moved pretty far right in U.S. politics. The left hasn't really budged. We see popping up. So there's the Bernie Sanders camp, but also the young guns. You have AOC. I think we're going to see a, a big pendulum swing politically more to the left because of this. So all the things that the, that the Republicans have been warning about currently it's not going to happen for a while, but it's going to happen, I think, in the next 10, 20 years, a big swing to the left. Got it. Now, is that population-wide or is that just within the Democratic Party? Because With, if it's uh, the latter, no. I foresee some issues. <laughs> yeah, I think just the Democratic Party. Okay, got it. I, no, I think, I think we're going to have more polarization. One of my colleagues wow. at WashU wrote a book current, that just came out. Politics of Rage, no, American Rage, it's called. Stephen Webster at Indiana University. Shout out mm. to Stephen. About politics is now, it's not about supporting your candidate, supporting your party. And I'm summarizing what, he, what he's talking about in his book. It's about hating the other party. Negative partisanship. Yeah. Exactly. So it's all about that. And so as the party, the Democrats swing more to the left, it's going to be even more negative partisanship. And I, I don't study American politics. This is just me guessing. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable guess, given what's happening. I don't think that 
that future is set in stone. I think that a number of things can still happen to change it, but it's certainly a risk and a big one um, mm-hmm. for the United States and the world because given the level of paralysis we're already experiencing, look what's happened, right? Mm-hmm. So now imagine multiplying that level of paralysis and chaos by some factor of whatever, and you get into a pretty nasty picture. But that's yeah. further further out, uh, it sounds like you think. Yeah, remember the the Luddites from the the Industrial Revolution in They smashed in the, UK? the powered looms. Exactly. I think yeah. we're going to have the 21st century Luddites that are going to be smashing robots that are building things. Interesting. Mm. Luckily, wow. we don't have a, 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 a lot of guns in the U.S. that would help <laughs> with that. Yeah, right. How do Jesus. you smash an algorithm? <laughs> like, there's no way to smash, yeah, like... With your mind. With your mind. Whoa, cosmic. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the pod. Do you have any books you want to plug? What your current research is? Anything like that? Shout out to mom. We're really famous. So, Hey, Ma. Uh, (laughs) No, if you guys, uh, this is great. If you want to have me back, this is a lot of fun to talk about things that I'm reading. You guys are consumers of, of the news, as am I. I just tend Indeed. to focus on a particular thing, looking at it through a th- certain lens. But if you want to talk more about supply chains, we didn't even talk about currency manipulation, which is what my book is going to be about. So it's all about currency conflicts and why awesome. states stop engaging in currency, currency manipulation. When's, when's your book coming out? <sighs> when it gets done. <laughs> a while. <laughs> Let's do a soft 2022. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Cool. You'll be back on the pod well before then, I'm sure. Thank you for helping us make sense of this tangled mess that is the global economy yeah. in 2020 and beyond. Thank you, Ryan. It was good to hear your, your insights. Yes. Thank we'll have you, you back for sure next time we have questions. Hi. Hi. <laughs> you guys are my hype men. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. We're hyping it up. All right. That That's it for this week. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Pete. And we will talk to everybody next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.